0: hello everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot i'm matt risby evening and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology is the last of the mohicans is ed davis how the devil are you sir
1: i'm very very well i am um currently enjoying a nice beer in preparation for this episode which i think is going to be an interesting one for in terms of our our topic of discussion
0: yeah we're doing an artist profile we've done nine of these so far this year this is the penultimate one we've got one more left and a little bit of a kind of curveball this week who are we talking about ed we are talking about madonna hmm why the fuck are we talking about madonna
1: well, when we were drawing up our list of people, I think we wanted to add a bit of variety. So we had people like Jay Bruckheimer, who's someone who's not traditionally thought of as a filmmaker, but who, in when you think about it, his work has kind of a, a consistent aesthetic. And I think we wanted to pick someone who has dabbled in film, but has kind of incorporates film as part of a broader aesthetic of their persona and their career. And Madonna was the person that leapt to mind as someone who has used film to in some cases, uh, bolster her her persona and her reputation in the broader world in terms of her her art in a kind of a wider context.
0: Mm. And musicians crossing over into film is nothing new. Where does Madonna kind of maybe rank in the kind of the annals of the greats? There aren't really too many greats, is there? No,
1: I mean she's probably somewhere towards the bottom in terms of the overall quality of her work she hasn't got too many films that you could point to as absolute masterpieces and she does have a few on her cv that you can point to as being terrible but the same (laughs) at the same time her her work is is relatively limited so it's hard to really judge her work is fairly rare and spikes up and down in quality quite drastically
0: Mm before we kind of get into uh madonna's oeuvre that sounded dirty didn't it i uh, <laughs> didn't mean it's sound that way what is uh who would you think is the kind of the, the kind of the gold standard of uh rock star film crossover i'm gonna put in a uh a kind of left field choice of chris isaac
1: okay that's an interesting mm. one. yeah i can who
0: just it who turns up in david lynch and um things like science of the lambs very briefly and Yeah, I'm sure he's in other things that are good, but those two spring to mind.
1: I think probably someone like... I mean, the name that leapt to mind initially for me was Bowie, who is Mm. not someone who is a particularly great actor. He doesn't have a a terrific range, but he has a very specific charisma that is so beautifully deployed in things like the Hunger or The Prestige or Labyrinth or The Man Who Fell, fell to Earth. Or Zoolander. Or Zoolander, yep. <laughs> as, you know, he is someone who fits perfectly into those roles and it really kind of... He, he isn't someone you could point to as necessarily a great screen presence, but he has a very uh, specific energy that that works in the roles that he's picked for.
0: Mm, yeah, and he wears incredibly tight, leave little to the imagination... Kind of uh, leggings in uh, in Labyrinth, which are kind of uh, haunted my dreams forever.
1: Yeah, and no trousers in one scene in the Man Who Fell to Earth, which definitely leaves nothing to the imagination.
0: Oh yeah, you see a little Javid there, don't you? That's uh, <laughs> that's something I had to kind of blocked out, but you know, he leaves it on the screen, as it were. Anyway, let's get into uh, into Madonna. And we'll talk about her kind of breakthrough first, which is she did a couple of things early on, but her kind of genuine bona fide breakthrough has to be considered to be desperately seeking Susan. My luck can't get much worse anyway, miserable scumbags!
1: Maybe I should have slept with him. Man, some witch steals my clothes.
0: Igor gets pushed out a hotel window and now you get fired. No offence, but bad luck really seems to be following you around. Look, we're both free now. Let's just go to the movies. double feature? Come on. I'll pay for the movie if you pay for the popcorn. Okay, but listen, how much is popcorn? 2 dollars She was not the lead in this film. Uh, she's very much the kind of supporting role. But when everyone thinks about the film, they they remember it as her being, you know, it being a Madonna's film. Um, and I think that probably is testament to how kind of like big her personality was at the time and how big she was at the time
1: yeah and i think also because the character of susan is in many ways her persona from what she was doing in her music videos at the time and from her music in general which is to be a very kind of sexually adventurous very kind of forthright and independent woman who just does pretty much what she wants, which is, and if you look at her style there, which is very much kind of like layered skirts and kind of her hair just kind of going all over the place is exactly the same sort of look you would see in the videos for like Holiday or Lucky Star. You know, mm. it is, it, 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 it for you, even though it's, uh, she obviously didn't direct the film or, or anything like that, that was uh, Susan Seidelman. She has, she definitely seems to have a strong influence on the, on the aesthetic of the film to the extent that the uh, Rosanna Arquette character after being bonked on the head and developing amnesia and starting to think that she is the character of Susan starts dressing like her which is has this sort of unusual resonance in the fact that the film was a huge success and really popularized that look so it, it led to people copying the look that Madonna was popularizing through her of her work.
0: Mm. It was kind of like a punky disco kind of pop look and kind of feel wasn't it which which very much kind of typified her kind of earlier kind of stuff
1: and also the film in general is very much based in the same world that susan seidelman and madonna to an extent came from which is bohemian new york the kind of no wave blank generation sort of uh era um in, which is reflected in some of the casting like uh, in the people like john lurie and uh, Richard Hell having small roles in the film, uh, and also John Carlo Esposito who shows up in a, as a street vendor, which is uh, was quite strange because he's very very young, and uh, John Turturro who mm. looks pretty much the same. He he's kind of like the anti Paul Rudd in that he's always looked a bit old, <laughs> uh, and so as such doesn't look drastically different to how he did thirty years ago. But it, it very much uh, takes the Bohemian stylings of New York at that time and has the danger kind of in there the undercurrent of it but also sanitizes it to an extent and makes it very palatable to a mainstream audience which is very much what madonna was doing she was taking sounds that were big on the sort of underground dance scene and the underground pop scene in new york and converting that into stuff that you could get that could get to number one on the charts
0: mm. Does that film exist without Madonna? Is it a a kind of vehicle, as it were, or is it just uh, opportunistic casting?
1: I think that you could have that film without Madonna. I think you could cast someone to basically fulfil the Madonna type and they would probably do a slightly more naturalistic performance. There's a, a slight air of artificiality to what Madonna is doing in the film, but I don't think it gets anywhere near the level of attention without Madonna in there. I think it would be forgotten and it wouldn't have become as influential as it would become in terms of like the broader culture and the fashion and the fact that the phrase desperately seeking Susan gets used as like pun titles for TV shows, even now or TV episodes. Mm. Like it's a, a phrase that is still resonates in the culture in a way that I don't think would have happened if it had just been a Rosanna Arquette vehicle.
0: Mm. Given that the film is, and please be sitting down listeners, actually quite good. Is it surprising that Madonna didn't kind of follow up with a string of similar hits, or is that reflective of the fact that she was at that time more focused on music?
1: Yeah, I do feel that it is entirely down to the fact that she was just too busy in in her kind of constantly churning out hit singles and putting out new albums pretty much every year or every two years and constantly touring. I think it's just a case that, movies were very much a thing that she seemed to do in her downtime rather than being a thing that she particularly focused on but i think if she had decided to go in that direction it, it probably would have been a good gateway for her to try out more uh leading roles which she did to an extent in things like who's that girl but i think it, it in some ways defines a trend throughout her career which is that she's often at her best when she's in a supporting role in films rather than being the lead because I think she can bring something to it without necessarily having to carry the whole film on her back
0: mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the elephant in the room that we that we haven't kind of uh, acknowledged is that Madonna is it's I think fair to say not a very good actor and what makes it appealing what makes her so appealing in in desperately seeking Susan and the films in which she is good
1: I think it's the In those films, she seems more willing to sublimate her persona to the whims of a director and maybe is more willing to take coaching. I think in films where she is more central to the narrative or she's more central to the production, which tends to happen uh, a fair bit as well as she becomes more famous, becomes more involved in shaping how the films turn out. I think she she seems less willing to kind of change what she's doing. Whereas I think in, Mm. in Desperately Seeking Susan... She works within the limits of what she's doing and serves the film in general rather than being the the driving force behind it.
0: Mm. Yeah, cool. So that's uh, her breakthrough. We're going to talk about her kind of cinematic oddity now. And speaking of the film that she is the driving force of, we're going to talk about two films here, incidentally, both kind of very released within a year of each other. But the first one is the film that she was very much the driving force behind Truth or Dare, or as it's known on the shores, In Bed with Madonna. She doesn't want to live off camera, talk. <laughs> There's nothing to say off camera. Why would you say something if it's off camera? An oddity wired.
1: Because it was a documentary about her and her blonde ambition tour in 1990, and it was something that offered a pretty candid look behind the scenes of what her life was like at that time and her kind of retinue of dancers and hangers-on and it seems to go against her kind of very control, her very strong control of her image.
0: Mm. Is it what, because do you think that she is represented as as different to how she'd want to be in that, or...?
1: I think it's more that she presents a very chaotic vision of her life, whereas Mm. I feel like if you look at her music videos, in general, they have they often have a very similar shared aesthetic, or the similar ideas that get repeated over and over again. They, they, she is very precise in what she presents to the world in terms of the like her look. The fact that it it was very it was a very big deal when she adopted the ga- uh, gamin look for the Papa Don't Preach video and stuff like that. She is someone who understands the importance of visual and of presenting a very meticulously created image to the world and truth or dare seems to just be very much because it's a documentary about behind the scenes of a tour it doesn't have that it doesn't seem to have that level of control
0: Mm. there's a i haven't seen the film in many years but i seem to remember the key bit for me was a bit where warren Beatty's in it and does someone say to him what's she like off camera and he says something like there is no off camera Mm, yeah is that in the film that is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly revealing remark, given the that time, the blonde ambition era of her life, she was the most famous woman in the world.
1: And it does inform, I feel, the film in general, because when you watch it, it's very hard to tell if this is like her being genuine or her putting on a performance because there's cameras there. You know, you don't know if the camera was off, if that was how she would be behaving all the time, if she would be this huge and seemingly constantly on, or if she would be more subdued and tired, mm. uh, which is not something she ever seems to see. Her her expressions of emotion in the film rarely seem unforced, They're, or, or they are expressed in moments that are deliberately kind of her playing around with the, the dancers and people in, in working on the show.
0: Mm. To what to what extent is Truth or Dare a snapshot of a mega star at a certain point in their life? Or is it a puff piece to promote a tour?
1: It doesn't feel like a puff piece, partly because the tour had already finished by the time the film came out. So it does capture the tour because the performances in it, uh, the, the backstage stuff is all black and white and the performances all kind of full colour and choreographed. And you can really see the effort that went into it and that the 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 importance of you know modern dance which was her background you know that's why she mm. moved to new york was to study to be a dancer and then she just turned into the biggest pop star in the world but you can really see in some of the performances and the way they use props and the physical motion of the bodies that it almost resembles like a desolation it's very very elaborate and very it's, it's as much a physical performance as it is a musical performance and so that that half of it, it just kind of captures her at the height of her powers. And then it doesn't feel like a puff piece just because she kind of comes off as a dick in it. <laughs> um, and it, I again, I don't know if that's intentional, if that is just because she feels, because the camera is on her, that she has to be kind of this big, very theatrical persona. And her her dancers and her backing singers all kind of take that as their cue to be big and outrageous as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I do remember it being fairly great. I remember a bit where they they are literally playing truth or dare, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she's kind of sucking. someone's sucking off a bottle. Yeah, kind of best forgotten. I think uh, that film. I always kind of regarded it as a as a kind of a fairly put on affair. That there was nothing really genuine in there, and I kind of felt that's what Warren Beatty was always alluding to that there is no life off camera, as in she's always on, whether the camera is running or not. But, yeah, kind of speaking of Warren Beatty, the other oddity in, in, in Madonna's oeuvre is the film Dick Tracy. All right, all right, that's
1: enough. I want them dead, both of them. I want this
0: no-face dead and I want Tracy dead. What's the matter? You bums forgot how to kill people? Doesn't your work mean anything to you anymore? Have you no sense of pride in what you do? No sense of duty? No sense of destiny? I'm looking for
1: generals! What do I got? Foot soldiers! I WANT this
0: DEAD Which I rewatched today, having seen first uh, on release. And that film is fucking crackers.
1: It is, it's absolutely mental. It's it kind of falls into the same category as a film that came out ten years earlier, uh, Robert Altman's Popeye. Mm. In that you take someone who is a very controlling and uh, director who has a very has a, a style of their own and then you have them try and make an incredibly fateful adaptation of a specific comic and Mm. at the same time keep their their own kind of stamp on it and uh, in the case of dick tracy that results in you know one of the most kind of garishly designed films ever put to (laughs) put to film
0: it it weirdly reminded me of sin city Mm. in the sense that it was it was kind of technologically a kind of a marvel really very stylistically bold very unusual uh, techniques it uses very kind of like uh, grotesque techniques it it kind of employs to bring the comic book literally to life and it it kind of looks awesome in places but in some places it looks horrible and kind of jarring and then in other places well the whole film the stylistic flourishes and and the techniques they employ can't elevate any of the emotion or acting or story above page level and it's just the most flat tiresome overacted ham-fisted really long and boring. It's like two hours, uh, over two hours long by the numbers cop thing with weird villains. It's very, it's very peculiar watch.
1: It is. And it's also strange to think that it's kind of an interesting case of when a Hollywood jumps on a trend, which was the the year before Batman had been a huge success. And so they started just thinking, okay, what comics can we adapt? And Mm. so you end up with like Dick Tracy and The Shadow, which Mm. are both also kind of taking comics that had their basis in the 1940s or, or 50s or even earlier and trying to kind of make an incredibly faithful version instead of making one that was kind of for modern
0: audiences yeah and and madonna's character uh to bring it to madonna for a second is kind of that femme fatale role but her kind of acting limitations means that she is just kind of like aping the affectations of the femme fatale rather than actually playing a character which is not just a trap that she falls into but slightly better actors like Al Pacino falls into that one who although he is playing a cartoonish character somehow manages to be too broad in that in that kind of um, remit and turns in what can only be described as one of his most ridiculous performances which is a lot of kind of fake chin wobbling shouting fist banging on tables and kind of gibbering around like a kind of a weird cartoon gangster that's kind of in the wrong film, which is, is kind of odd to think because the film is so big and ridiculous. And he got an Oscar nomination for it, which is insane.
1: Yeah, there's kind of an award for volume of acting more than anything else. Mm, yeah. He's he's acting enough for 10 men. And it, <laughs> it, it, is, it is a little overwhelming. I think it's kind of entertaining to see how big he can go because especially around about that time, he was also... He was a few years away from winning his Oscar for uh, Scent of a Woman. And I think in comparison, his performance in Scent of a Woman seems very restrained. Mm. And, and it, it does, it's very interesting to see how a lot of his subsequent work compares to that, because he's he's at this point become someone who's seen, uh, seen as quite hammy in a lot of ways. And I think the, uh, the performance in Dick Tracy is... A good kind of bellwether to determine just how hammy he's being. If you look at his performance and think it's bigger or smaller than his performance in that one, then uh, you know you're in kind of dangerous territory.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an odd film in 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 general. Dick Tracy it is kind of regarded as a kind of a mixed bag, but it got seven Oscar nominations and it won three, uh, which is kind of nuts. And read that it's, it kind of held the record as the most successful Oscar-wise most um, successful film comic book adaptation until The Dark Knight, which is nearly 20 years later, which is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very much indicative of the technical aspects of the film, because I think that is where a lot of those things came from. And and Song, where it won Stephen Sondheim his uh, sole Oscar, which is very strange for mm. when you consider what a, an amazing career Stephen Sondheim had that his one Oscar nomination and win came from Dick Tracy. Of all things, it's it's very much one of those things that you read and think that's going to be great to know for a pub quiz at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is very much maybe a testament to the fact that Warren Beatty at that point was already something of an institution. You know, you, you are seeing at that point, the movie Brats from the 70s are very much the establishment. Uh, and that's the same year that you see things like Goodfellas coming out and obviously um, Spielberg was huge and Coppola was Uh, well regarded even though not that successful so you know i think that certainly probably had an influence in determining how well that film would do when it came up to awards time
0: Mm -hmm. it's weird that like i'm saying that madonna kind of just goes through the affectations of the femme fatale rather than actually being a femme fatale and playing a character is the kind of retread the same kind of problems in a film that came out a couple of years later riding the back of that erotic thriller phase she was in body of evidence where she kind of tried to do the same thing and somehow managed to make Sharon Stone's performance in basic instinct look masterful
1: (laughs) it it is interesting to see it also as an outgrowing of a recurring theme throughout her career which is that she is visually very strongly influenced by classic hollywood And, you know, you can see that at various points she has mulled herself on people like Marlena Dietrich or Audrey Hepburn. And in things like Express Yourself, directed by David Fincher, was based on Metropolis. You know, she has all of these influences kind of coming in there. And and that seems very much... Obviously, uh, she, I think, is in that film partly because she was in a relationship with Warren Beatty at the time. But I Mm. think she would want to play that role because it gives her an opportunity to act out her love of that particular era similar to how in who's that uh yeah in who's that girl she was trying to kind of emulate or bring back the kind of hero of the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s uh, with not not particularly good uh, success but that is very much... Or, you know, if you look at the visual style of some of her video, uh, videos where they take on the style of, like, 60s art house cinema and stuff like that, she is clearly someone who, whose uh, aesthetic and style was very strongly defined by the, the things that she grew up watching and wanting to emulate.
0: Mm. Here's a thought I've always had about Madonna. She's often described as someone who is kind of very savvy... And always kind of is ahead of kind of popular tastes and kind of popularises things, you know, below the mainstream and brings them into into kind of the public eye. But I've always kind of viewed her as someone who kind of kills those things. As soon as a movement is kind of gaining kind of traction, she'll kind of pick up on it just after it's kind of crested and peaked and then makes it pop, therefore makes it meaningless and it's kind of over.
1: I think that's true in a lot of cases. I think it's, it's absolutely true of her work in the nineties and the two thousands. But, you know, by the time that she started doing EDM, EDM was already kind of a very popular subgenre, and she wasn't really, she was maybe bringing it to an older audience. And so Madonna doing this kind of very aggressive electronica would draw those people's attention to the genre, but it was already like something that was fairly well known and popularized. I think, at other times something like you know justify my love that song came out in 1990 and that's basically a trip-hop song at a time mm. when hardly anyone had even used this phrase that is kind of being aggressively on the the cutting edge of things and then being kind of met with baff- bafflement as a result but then you have something like vogue where she took something that had been hugely popular in kind of the gay subculture in new york for decades and you know at the time she put out Vogue, was also the same year that Paris is Burning came out, which really kind of brought that, I think, to the popular consciousness in some small way. That was very much a case where she took something that was maybe on the the crest of breaking out anyway and then just happen to, happening to get there uh, and making it this kind of dance craze that seemed almost to be kind of a flash-in-a-pan thing because she was the only one that kind of really did it in a big popular way.
0: Mm. We've kind of had to do this, Ed, for the benefit of our listeners. We've had to watch Madonna's worst films, and we've kind of picked one each. And I'm not really sure who got the shortest straw. What did you have to sit through, Ed? I had
1: to sit through her 2011 directorial effort, W.E. David, let's stop all this talk about marriage. It frightens me, and I can't see any good coming of it. Why? Why? Your family will never stand for it. The Prime Minister won't stand for it. Then I'll give up the throne. And I will be the most despised woman in the world.
0: Why do you belittle yourself? They would be lucky to have you as their queen. You're delusional. If I had any sense at all, I would just disappear. Don't you understand? You can do whatever you like, go wherever you want. But whatever you do, I'll follow you. Hmm. Tell us about W.E.
1: W.E. is... Uh, I thought it was a film about Wallace Simpson, and it ha- half is. Half hmm. of it is about Wallace Simpson and her relationship, uh, played by Ada Riceborough, who, I'll say straight off, is very good in the film. She does the best that she can with what she is given. Uh, who And her relationship with Edward VIII, who, played by James Darcy, who is probably most famous now for his work on Marvel's Agent Carter, and who I think is doing good work on that show almost as penance, because this film does not do him any favours. And it's half that, it's half about their relationship told in this kind of impressionistic style that jumps back and forward in time and location and covers all the various points in their courtship in a very ahistorical and whitewashed way that doesn't in any way suggest that they might have been horrible racists and Nazi (laughs) sympathisers, even though I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they probably were. Um, It focuses more on the, oh, it's a romance and she... Uh, and he gave up the, the throne for her and all this sort of stuff, and, but uh, but not like, and oh, they only had lunch with Hitler once. It's like, hmm, that's maybe ignoring a lot of other evidence from the time just to say that they were just romantic. Uh, but the other half of the film is set in modern day and about a young woman played by Abby Cornish who becomes obsessed with the Wallace Simpson story and, it kind of, and how that influenced her life and her relationship with her possibly abusive husband, played by Richard Coyle of coupling of all things the the <laughs> daft the daft one from coupling who becomes like an abusive husband is, which is uh some real kind of cognitive dissonance there and her kind of budding friendship with a security guard at a at an auction house that is selling the wallace simpson's effects uh played by oscar isaac in a role that does not suggest that he would be a good actor in a few years time <laughs> And it's just—it's just really bad. It's really awful. It's really boring. It jumps backwards and forwards between these two storylines and doesn't really draw much in terms of comparisons between the two. And also, just wastes a lot of potential because there are a lot of good actors in the cast. There's a lot, and there's an interesting story to be drawn, either in maybe Madonna's own personal feelings of being an American who moved to England and was kind of ostracized as be it for it and and that aspect of the story. Or the idea of a woman becoming obsessed with this romantic story that has kind of been built up and is kind of been falsified by the media, but it's just a very bland and uh, at some points just baffling attempt uh, at making a particular kind of awful art house film.
0: What do you think drew her to directing WE?
1: I think it's, there are elements of the story that if you know about her backstory, there are that you can kind of draw to it. I think that the idea of Wally Simpson, who is this woman who kind of moves to that, becomes at the heart of the British social system because of her relationship with Edward the Eighth. I think there are, she probably could draw parallels to that in her relationship with Guy Ritchie and the fact that she... Moved over to the to the UK and became this kind of tabloid fixation as as after what after a very short period of time and her her because she was in kind of proximity to the British tabloid press and because she was dating a very prominent British director, I think that she maybe felt some sympathy to to that element of her story of being suddenly thrust into this uh, media limelight in a way that uh, she hadn't necessarily been before because as as Rabid as the american tabloid presses they don't really have much on on our hacks um mm. so i think that that may have drawn it to it and there's also stuff in there about like domestic abuse which i think is something that uh allegedly uh, she has suffered at the hands of sean penn and uh i think that there are you know there's probably some stuff in there that she probably related to a bit although weirdly the film really downplays that aspect in a way that doesn't really seem to suit the seriousness of the story that she's trying to tell.
0: Hmm. Did Madonna at any point in her career have lunch with Hitler? <laughs>
1: uh, even once,
0: even once. I mean, once is, is. let's be honest, too many times, but...
1: As far as I'm aware, no, but I don't have access to her, like her day planner. Hmm. So... She did
0: date Vanilla Rice, which is maybe I mean, worse? <laughs> uh, yeah, I
1: mean, like there, there, there's definitely a spectrum of experiences there. And I think... Dating Vanilla Ice and having lunch with Hitler they're definitely are at a similar end of the scale.
0: Mm, absolutely. Speaking of scales of awfulness, I watch swept away. In the playground of the rich, or it's people are the same. They play funny little games. Our job is to smile like idiots. It was his job. My name is Giuseppe Pepe, for short. Would you show my wife the gym? Wait here. Your gym, madam. It was her rules. Pee-pee. Water and towel. Understand? told her that is <laughs> It was about having it all. Pee-pee.
1: I think I'm going to kill that woman. Do that kitchen.
0: <laughs> Until it was all <laughs> swept away. Which, you know, behind the camera, W.E., clearly a worst effort. But I'd probably make the argument that swept away might be one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> An odd choice for Guy Ritchie to kind of follow up to fairly kind of like knockabout gangster romps with Lock, Stock and Snatch. He followed it up with, with this swept away, which is a, a pretty kind of faithful remake of an Italian film of the same name. The film is essentially, the plot is kind of overboard, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Italian film, a kind of rich, spoiled brackets kind of washed overboard of a kind of expensive yacht. Uh, but this time she kind of drags over, overboard with a the uh, kind of a cabin boy who's kind of like, who she's really horrible to And through all kind of great romantic comedies, they don't get along at first and then they learn to understand each other and, you know, eventually fall in love and it's great. Now, that's what conventional romantic comedies do. This film, they don't get along at first because they're both fucking vile people. (laughs) And Madonna's character is so vile that it's difficult to see her ever turning it around and becoming likable or even relatable and not even as a person. As like as as a, as a living organism, you would is kind of hard to accept what she's doing, and then the kind of the moment at which they kind of don't get along at first, and then they get together, is he rapes her, <laughs> he straight up rapes Madonna, and that's them. Then they fall in love, and it's really badly acted. It's a lot of a lot of hard uh, a lot of kind of demands are asked of actors when it's just a two hander. And when one of the answers is Madonna, it kind of exposes all of her flaws and all of her kind of inadequacies as an actor. Like I say, she's best used in kind of smaller supporting roles where her kind of personality can shine through. But in this, it's just it—it's interminable. The film and and it's kind of I'm kind of looking at the response to it today and kind of reading some of the reviews for it and things. And it's interesting to think that. Interesting to see that Madonna instantly defended the film to say that the reason that the reaction was so negative was just because it was kind of tall poppy syndrome that uh, Guy Ritchie and her had kind of become these these kind of tabloid figures and had essentially done too well and they needed to be taken down a peg or two. And I have to say that 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 is absurd because the film is so, so terrible that that can't even be possibly brought into contention.
1: It's very interesting, I think, in terms of her, as we were saying, her, she's best used as a supporting actor, and I think also when she doesn't have too much of an influence on the production side of things. I think in cases where she is just kind of a collaborator who's brought in but doesn't have the final say, and I think that that situation is obviously going to be very difficult at that point in her career, which where she was this massive like global superstar. And she had been for 20 years, basically her entire adult life. She'd been kind of a household name, but she's also working with her husband. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a situation where their kind of involvement would perhaps not be, that's the kind of personal uh, relationship that may not be that conducive to the best work because that it's very hard to take kind of arguments over the film and leave them on the set. It's the sort of thing you're going to carry home, so you may not be willing to push as hard, or or Guy Ritchie may not have been as willing to push as hard on uh, his choices if if he was, uh, compared to, you know, if he was shooting swept away and instead of uh, Madonna, it was Jason Statham.
0: (laughs) I'd watch that, actually. I think everyone would. Yeah, I have to say as well like it's an odd choice for Guy Ritchie to direct this but for someone to do what's basically a two-hander when you don't particularly have the reputation for being the greatest writer and director of female characters um it's kind of a recipe for disaster really.
1: And also um something where you don't have a huge amount of opportunities for dazzling camera work which is mm. kind of his main thing. That was what he coming from advertising and music videos and stuff he his whole aesthetic was based on throwing as many tricks at the camera as possible and uh when you have a film which is just two people trapped on an island there are there's a lot of limitations to what you can actually do with the camera to spice that up
0: Mm, yeah and also the the, just the fact that it's a kind of a really beautiful uh, desert island make makes it look like you'd rather be in the east end of london which is you know, that's quite something to achieve there. <laughs> but yeah, Swept Away is it's kind of horrifyingly bad. Just woefully misjudged um, dreadfully executed and kind of begun that kind of weird trot that Guy Ritchie went on and then kind of had to reinvent himself as a kind of blockbuster director in the end. But yeah, a kind of weird one. And that was the, his kind of suicide note as being taken taken um, seriously as a kind of like a, like a, a proper director, as it were
1: yeah and then the years after that you see him doing like revolver where he tries to make a gangster film mixed in with like Kabbalah mysticism, which you know I think a lot of people have attributed to his relationship with Madonna and her kind of bringing that into their lives and I think that there you can you can kind of see him wanting to get back to what he does well, but at the same time maybe not being willing to concede that his that their collaboration had perhaps not been. Particularly suited to his skill set, and then you have him doing Rock and Roller, which was pretty much him returning just to the kind of wee kind of laddie uh, gangster stuff that he had he had done well in the past, and to, to kind of diminishing returns, but doing it in a way that people found a little more palatable than Revolver.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now he's kind of Sherlock Holmes, man from Uncle. Kind of uh, those early flourishes have kind of disappeared, and now he's a, a kind of a director for hire, isn't he, really?
1: Yeah, and the upcoming King Arthur movie, which apparently is going to be the starting point for a shared universe of films about the Knights of the Round Table, because there's nothing that you can't make more terrible by just adding it, making it a shared universe. <laughs>
0: Mm, how, uh, didn't we have a King Arthur film not long ago with like Ray Winston and and uh, Grufford and Kieran Knightley? Was Keira Knightley in that?
1: Yes, uh, from two thousand and four. So it's it's well overdue the reboot treatment.
0: Yeah, who's King Arthur in uh, in Guy Ritchie's reimagining?
1: I want to say Charlie Hunnam, but I don't. Okay. I don't know if it actually is. I think it. Be... I never want to say Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> I am wondering if it will be. It's just a, a Charlie Hunnam type. Let's hmm. see who it is Knights of the Round t- Round Table. Yeah, King <laughs> Charlie Hunnam. What a guess. Hmm. Uh, and also Scroobius Pip. Scroobius Pip has a small role in it as a uh, a bard of some sort.
0: Is he going to come in and freestyle? Or What? What's 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 that? Oh, don't make it one of those things.
1: Uh, no, I mean it's not going to be. Hopefully, it's not going to be like to get it back to We. The scene in We where. Um, where Andrea rice does the Charleston to Pretty Vacant by the Sex Pistols, which is a, oh. moment, a, a, a moment that is, you really have to see it. I mean, you, you don't. You don't have to see it. You really shouldn't. But it is awful. It is just appalling. And as um, hayley Ann I was talking to on Twitter said about this, uh, it is basically her just trying to ape Marie Antoinette, the uh, mm. Sophie Coppola film, but only doing it for one scene. So it just seems really horribly out of place. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, Pip is that going to be a singer and kind of comic relief, but it's a very small part. But yeah, it, I, I I think it would be more entertaining if he came on and freestyled, just because it would be a a moment of personality in what could possibly be a very bland film, because it's a, a King Arthur film starring Charlie Hunnam.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, let's get away from that nonsense and actually celebrate some good films that, uh, or a good film that Madonna has been in now. Most successful, financially, is actually kind of to have to come in through the back door on that one to kind of stretch this run of double entendres even further. But it's Die Another Day, isn't it? James Bond. Your lesson.
1: I see you handle your weapon well.
0: I have been known to keep my tip up. Because she is kind of in that.
1: Yeah, she is kind of in that, in that she, she has a one scene cameo where she walks in uh wearing a fencing uniform and then says maybe one line and then walks out mm. but she is also uh, she also sang the theme tune to the to the film uh, maybe the very worst bond theme tune although it's got the uh, the one that Chris Cornell recorded i think probably runs it pretty close um mm,
0: i've forgotten about that one
1: yeah that one's that
0: such one's an odd choice like maybe in like the mid '90s when Grunge was big, but now was it like the Quantum of Solace when he did?
1: No, he did Casino Royale. Quantum of Solace oh, yeah.
0: was Jack White and Alicia Keys. Oh, that's another not not particularly great one.
1: Yeah, they there was a, a run of not very good. That that's three films in a row where the song wasn't good at all. Uh, I think mm. you had to go back to the world is not enough for a good Bond theme.
0: Oh I mean, yeah, that was good.
1: Yeah. Uh, that one that one was an example of a kind of post-grunge band doing a Bond song very, very well, because they adopted the style, as opposed to what Chris Cornell and Madonna did, which is where they just take their style and try and write a song that, uh, well, at least in Madonna's case, she included the name of the film in it. At
0: least you get Scroobius Pippin.
1: <laughs> Scroobius Pippin's my favourite Hobbit.
0: Um <laughs> I'd love that if he just talked like Scroobius Pip the whole time. Um, thou shalt I'd...
1: not take a cursed ring.
0: Mm. Mordor, just a place. Shire? <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> think... Just a
0: place. Just a place. Yeah. Lothlorien, just a place. <laughs> Elves, just a race. <laughs> oh. oh man, I think we've 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 tapped into some gold here. Scroobius Pippin. I think that's uh, that's a future podcast all on its own. Back to uh, Die Another Day. Whilst it is technically the most successful film, we're not going to allow it as the most successful film because the most successful film is also her best film, her empirically her best film, and that's The Utterly Charming and Great, A League of Their Own. Are these girls going to be in the league? If you wish. You do wish. But they're going to have four teams, 16 girls to a team. That's right. 64 girls.
1: Yeah, what are you, a genius? <laughs> you know they
0: got over a hundred girls here, so um, some of you are gonna have to go home. Why is it so good?
1: Partly, it is the fact that um, I watched it yesterday, and we're just after the end of baseball season, so I just felt nostalgic <laughs> for a sport that has only just finished. Yeah. But I, I think it's it is great because it's a just a thoroughly lovely film. You know, it is a a film with a fictionalised account of something that actually happened, which was during the war. They created a a female baseball league to you know and ent- so that there was actually a sport going on that people could go to to distract from the ongoing conflict and you know the the, the awfulness of uh, a huge war that was going on uh but it's a wonderful wonderfully funny film it's a very kind of sweet film in a lot of ways uh, and has this kind of wonderful ensemble cast primarily of women and then tom hanks there to just kind of shout at them who get to have a story that is entirely about them that doesn't really that isn't really defined by the men in their life, so it is this kind of quietly feminist baseball comedy, uh, which is just incredibly rare, I think.
0: Mm. I mean, in the kind of the warm, nostalgic feminist baseball comedy genre, this is clearly the best one, but it's also why is, why is Madonna so appealing in it? I think I'd probably argue that it's a smaller role for her. And the demands of her aren't so much to act. It's more to kind of like force her personality through.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one of her more naturalistic performances. Um, and I think it, it works because it essentially just says, what we need you to do is to be just kind of a scrappy, forthright character, kind of similar to what she had always been, but to sort of tone it down and play it more for laughs than for provocation. And I think that when you do that with her, then she comes off as this kind of very charming and funny uh, figure in a way that she really isn't in pretty much anything else she had done. Except there's a bit of that in Desperately Seeking Susan, but there because it's playing so much on her persona, it feels a bit more forced. Whereas this, she is bringing her personality to it, but she's also bringing out this kind of very funny supporting character. And also I think it helps that she's paired with Rosie O'Donnell, who uh, she makes a kind, they they have quite a nice pair uh, chemistry together.
0: Mm, they do, which is something that she really hasn't had much of in her films.
1: No, like even whether it's uh, platonic or romantic, her she doesn't seem to really ever seem to exist in the same realm as her as her co-stars. Whereas this one, there is just kind of a, a conviviality between all the players in the film that really kind of comes comes across on screen.
0: Mm. To make you feel old, Ed, I took a girl on a date to see uh, League of Their Own at the cinema. Wow, how old were you in when that came out? Uh, was that ninety two? think so.
1: I would have been six.
0: Wow. That's made me feel really old. Um, (laughs) Do you think, I mean, that film, kind of weirdly looking up, at it's been kind of like, it's very well regarded, isn't it? Even though it doesn't seem to get talked about a whole lot.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very well regarded, I think, in terms of the world of sports films, because Mm -hmm. I think people often talk about the line, there's no crying in baseball being one of the all-time great lines from a sports film, and it's the sort of thing where kind of has that reputation because it does it does treat the sport of baseball very kind of seriously in that it's very it they, they does embrace it as a thing that can bring people together and that can offer you know kind of an escape both for the audience and for the people who play it so i think that it has a lot of that in terms of the sports community um i think it's i think it's it is underrated i think past partly because it's a comedy and comedies in general don't get particularly uh, a lot of respect unless they star Woody Allen or the Marx Brothers, uh, they, mm. they, or or unless they're something like Airplane, where they just force you to acknowledge it by the sheer number of gags. Mm. Um, but also, I think you know there is there is just generally in Hollywood and in in American cinema, films by and starring women tend not to get as much attention or as much as much regard as they perhaps deserve. And that film being directed by a woman and the story was by a woman, although I think it, the script was written by a couple of men. I think that means that it doesn't get discussed as much as, say, uh, a Bull Durham,
0: mm, yeah. which is a great which film.
1: But you know, yeah. it's, it, that that film is talked about a lot more than A League of Their Own is.
0: Mm, yeah, and both of those films are actually female-led movies. Yeah, uh, which is kind of uh, but, kind of uh, ironic.
1: But in uh, in A League of Their Own, Tom Hanks is uh, is the only kind of significant male character. Bill mm-hmm. you know, Pullman shows up for a little bit, and Scully's dad is there, uh, or slash the uh, major from Twin Peaks shows up for a couple of scenes, and John Lovitz actually is really funny in it.
0: Mm. And David Strathairn's in it as well, isn't he? Uh, he? kind of he's kind of building up a slew of vintage baseball performances.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it was a shame they couldn't get him into like forty two.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> just anywhere, point. just in, like as a as a bad boy or something. <laughs>
1: the world's oldest bat boy.
0: Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, Yeah, yeah. like
1: those, those are all, they're, they're significant male roles, but they're not kind of the central point of it, really. The, the central relationships are between Gina Davis and Laurie Petty as, as kind of sisters who duel against each other, or, you know, the various women's relationship to each other, or the the effect that, that traveling and being in the public eye has on them. The, the male, the male characters are very much off to the sideline And occasionally show up to move the plot along, Uh, Mm. whereas I feel like uh, Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins in Baldurum are a little more central. Well, certainly Kevin Costner is. Uh, Tim Robbins is just kind of there to be a dumb ox.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think the future is for Madonna in film? Because she didn't really kind of throw herself back into acting after Swept Away and Given the response that we has had, uh, I wonder how keen she's going to be to direct, and what do you think she's going to? Do you think it's something she's still going to always be interested in, or do you think it's something that's going to go on the back burner? I wouldn't be
1: surprised that she would try directing again. Uh, I think acting maybe something she moves into. Maybe if she reaches a point in her career where she doesn't want to tour anymore, obviously she still tours now. She still puts out not particularly inspired music. I think that if she wanted to move away from music or to put it on the back burner for a few years she probably could move into acting a bit more I just don't know if at this point she kind of hasn't done it for a long time whether whether she would be able to make that transition particularly easily you know like we were saying earlier about desperately seeking Susan I think had she chosen to pursue acting at that point in her career when it was still kind of very early on and she maybe could have learnt to kind of work within her range a little more she probably that probably would have been a little better for her whereas i think since then her acting has mainly been in music videos which is something there's is a very kind of different skill set
0: mm, mm, absolutely so that was our look at madonna everyone and like i say it's our penultimate artist profile this which is 2015's kind of uh, ongoing project um so we're going to bring it to a close next month with our last who are we talking about next month ed
1: we're going to be talking about the work of Michael Winterbottom.
0: That's going to be very tough to narrow down to five choices. Uh, That man is as prolific as he is interesting.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to have to watch about 700 films
0: Mm, and TV series. Yeah, and probably going to have to watch nine songs again, uh, which Uh. is not something I'm keen to do. So that's it for Madonna. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please uh, subscribe and find us on iTunes. Give us a little rate and review, all that jazz. You can find our website, which is uh, srspodcast.podbean.com, where you can find all the links to iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, Player FM, all that good stuff. We'll be back next week with, like we say, something else. Until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from me.
0: And goodbye from me.